Hello and welcome to our featureless podcast recording with Josh Stein. I am so delighted to welcome Josh to this conversation today and we are going to speak about his practice, get a little bit uh, of more information about him and, and his journey to becoming the artist he is today. Welcome Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me on the podcast and including me in this year's cohort in the collective. It's really been interesting and uh, I really have um, had some interesting times. You're more more than welcome and we are so thrilled to have um, an artist such as yourself um, on the collective because you bring such a level of diversity to the collective through your different types of works and of course you are based if we listen to that accent, you're obviously not based in, in Ireland or on the east side of the Atlantic. So tell us a bit about where you're based. Well, I grew up on my version of the east side of the Atlantic, but now I live in California and I'm actually in Napa, California. I have been there for a couple decades. So, yeah, you're hearing like it's not quite a Midwestern American accent, but it's a very plain vanilla kind of Americanism. <laughs> <laughs> it's still making us very multicultural, um, to say the least. <laughs> um, I but hope so. tell, okay, so but that that's great. That's kind of kickstarting our conversation in the right directions. Tell us, tell how did how did creativity come into your world? What was the trigger from the very beginning? So I grew up on the East Coast, as I said, in the equivalent of what would be called kind of a housing estate. We call them just sort of. Uh, you know, suburban sort of, um, they call them Levitt towns. They're, they're literally built by this company that was founded by this guy named Levitt. And it's just, right, the reproduction of the same kind of house over and over again, this kind of suburban maze. And the only difference is that the houses are separate, right? So every house has its own little patch of ground. And I grew up, as I say, um, mine was the family that always stood out. My father was a mover, so mine was the family with the moving truck outside of its house because he had to park it sometime, someplace. And so I around me was this um, kind of suburban paradise for people with a lot of money. Like people would do well and then leave the town. And sometimes my family was the people who moved them out of the town. I literally remember packing up my neighbors across the street. Um, so I saw a lot of... Um, economic security that my family didn't really have but what i did have was access to doing things right we had instead of a backyard we had a garden every fall there was a, a ton of manure that was my job to move from the front of the house to the back of the house to put manure into I, it's just lovely work, right like doing stuff no i but it taught me that if you wanted things it wasn't really about money per se it was that if you had enough will of effort and you were willing to put the time and effort in you could do just about anything so uh, I, fortunately, I grew up really close to a really good community college that had a really fantastic art program. So I started taking what were essentially free art classes when I was very young. I learned calligraphy. I was eight or nine. Uh, I worked with clay. Uh, I was working with illustration and sketches when I was, I mean, I was a kid kid. Um, and so for me, creativity became a way sort of if I couldn't afford it, I would make it. Right. I grew up in the age of like action figures. I could never afford all the planes and toys and things you were supposed to put the action figures into. But I could take my sister's diaper boxes and I could take things and turn them into spaceships. 
and I could take string and turn an entire room into nothing but a string filled maze that only I had access to. Uh, and so, I mean, to their credit, my folks gave me the space to do that, right? I mean, other people would go on vacation. I would stay home and I would make things. I would create. I would do things. And I look back on that and it sort of prepared me for what my life has often been, which is um, not having the money to make it go, but having the ability to make it go. So I did. And I think the lesson that I always drew from that is that right, creativity is something that's in us. You, no one can take it away from you. No one can make you use it, but also no one can take it away from you. And so if you're willing to find the time, the energy, the cracks in the rest of your busy schedule, there's no excuse not to make if you feel compelled to do so. And for me, I guess I've always felt that compulsion, um, this like sense that a way of trying to add to the world instead of just take from it. That's really, mm. and maybe I, I hope it's not a rationalization, but really a, like a different philosophy of the way to look at, at life that instead of spending, I can make. And I, I, for, for many, many years, even when I had money to do so, I still preferred to make gifts for people rather than buying them something, right? I mean, you can't control what someone does with a gift afterwards, but I my logic was I'm putting my life energy into this. I'm trying yes. to share something of me with somebody else, right? Yeah. And I mm. find that that it's why creatives often make good connections between themselves in a way, because even if mm. they're doing different kinds of work, there's a similarity of approach there, right? Like that life sucks for all of us, but we don't have to like suffer with that. We can do something with it. And yes. so I could have very easily been this like sullen kid or all these other people they go, I, I never learned to ski. Like, I, how was I? I never, I couldn't have afforded the ski tickets, the lift, the, all the, that never would have happened in my life. So I could have been bitter about something like that. Or while everybody else was off skiing, well, I made some really cool snow forts and I built structures and, right, I spent my time in ways that I think um, made positive use of that time instead of mm. just letting it kind of use me. That's kind of the best way I can put it. So in your kind of in in your kind of childhood, you're saying you're making so much stuff and you're creating, and then you went into your um to, to the the college where you you learned a little bit more about art your art practice and developed it. But was there anyone kind of in your life around that period in your earlier stages um that encouraged you to to pursue it more? Or was it very self directed? So I had I did have a wonderful art teacher, um, Mr. V, who unfortunately passed away very young. Um, and Mr. V, this was, again, this is the 1970s. So he was considered the hippie of the town. He, at a time when the school had no room for art, he had an art cart. And he worked for years to, to lobby to, for them to turn the janitor's room into an art room. So we actually had a room to do art instead of him having to bring the art to us. Mm. So, and 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 his his whole shtick was make whatever you want right the whole impulse behind it was to be as creative as possible so i made i made mazes i made maze races i made multiple maze competitions i and that was the first time i ever enlisted a group of people to help me make something i was probably mm. six or seven and we made a room size art project that, wow. that enlisted the efforts of 10 or 12 other kids to help me make it I mean, it was it was really this idea of like free play and play seriously. And that always stayed with me, that idea that you could 
what? Tap into creative flow. Let it take you wherever it takes you, but do it in a serious, determined kind of manner. And I've always sort of taken from that that it's, it's hard work to make. Mm. If you want to make seriously, it's iterate, at least for me, it's very much an iterative process of making and then making again and making more and making more. And part of that is a background in computer science, writing code, um, where it's always about sort of testing things out, rebuilding, knowing stuff is never going to go perfectly the first time. Like this idea of, I I see it in my work today of modularity, of needing to always be flexible and being willing to attempt different things. I think that if you're willing to do that, that's really where creativity can then unlock things you were not anticipating. And I've heard artists, it took me a while to understand what they meant when they would say, I found out something about myself in the process of creating. But I think that's really what that means, right? Like you feel that there's this like live wire in you. And you you don't necessarily know where that live wire is taking you, and until mm-hmm. it allows, until you allow it to be manifested, really, yes, you see yeah. it too, right? Like the yes, first time 100%. I really saw myself as an artist, I remember this very distinctly. I looked at one of my own pieces, and I didn't recognize it as something I had made. It was just a piece of art that was there, and I realized that that was really the true power of what real creative flow is: is that it can be externalized to the point where the creator themselves can be touched by the very thing that has been created. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that becomes, it's the the timelessness of creative flow then gets externalized in this way that the object takes that on too. And Mm -hmm. I just find that imagine it's, it's just a magic trick Mm -hmm. that the magician too is, is amazed and, and as part of as much as the audience. And that's, to me, something that then gets passed on into time that others can pick mm. up and do with what they want to. That's absolutely that's wonderful. I, I 100% experience the same thing. And it's uh, for me, it's kind of like it's it's a purity in the in the experience that you do when you're when you allow yourself to let go when you're making to just let something happen, let something come in. And you're right in being playful with that. Um, and, and when we're in a situation where we allow ourselves to be playful, we do uncover a lot of things about ourselves, maybe not consciously at the time, but further down the line, we it, it, it will kind of re, reappear and you will see, oh, that's what I was kind of thinking there. That's what I was uncovering there. And that is what I'm dealing with at that point. I think it's incredible, an incredible tool to access that internal scope to ourselves, which is um, very a very powerful tool, very powerful indeed. Um, and you kind of said, so as you were kind of making, it's kind of like, it's like, it's, it's incredible. It seems like you've had great freedom in your childhood to be able to make. And I think it's, it's, it seems like you were encouraged hugely to do so. Um, was there ever a restriction in place that, that stopped you or that, that maybe made you question something? No, I think, um, so, so two things for me, like as a child, literally from the time I was an infant, I was always banging on pots getting ready to play drums which is what i am i'm also a drummer um and so i think my parents recognized early on that there were um strong creative impulses in um in what i did right and so i mean you can try to contain that or you can try to find ways to channel that Mm -hmm. and as i say i think um you know uh, if i had been born into um more of an upper middle class family that might have been channeled in other kinds of ways, but right, we couldn't 
the the money was not there, but the space and time to be able to make was. And so I was encouraged to be myself. That's really what it comes down to. And if that meant I was interested in fish, then I had a fish tank and I took care of those fish. If that meant I was interested in working with clay, then we couldn't, obviously there was not going to be a way to do clay at home, but they could find a way to find a class where I could work with clay, right? I mean, it was, and then when I got older, when I was working on computers, I had to, I, I, you want it? Find a job, do that work. I started working like work, work before I was 10 years old, like real work. And mm -hmm. I had a, a first real job with a salary by the time I was 12. So like the idea that you have to work for things stuck with me always, but mm -hmm. also that there was a certain, what goes along with that then is a kind of agency that it's yours to use. Like no one's going to stop you because you have created this space for yourself to do what you want to do. So do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I moved from very, very easily from visual arts into music arts for the same reason, because mm. it was something that it didn't require a lot, right? Like DIY yes. things just require a strength of will and, and an ingenuity to solve problems that doesn't mean money is the solution. Yes. I think that that's really like the path there. I was talking about this in a, um, a seminar yesterday, how few um, young lords and lordesses end up making really good art. And that's because if you have money to solve problems, you don't really get, have to solve problems in the same kind of way. Whereas if you don't, well, then this and these are how you figure things out and make stuff yes. go. And I think the yes. longer term impact, if when combined with creative flow, is mm. exactly this idea of like a, an unfolding ever widening ever opening up path towards new ideas and new experiences as opposed to a closing down Definitely. i think i think the rich must be very bored for that reason whereas <laughs> i know very few bored creative people they may be hungry yeah. they may be rumbling they may be tired but they're usually not bored because they're working no. in the world in very impo important and powerful kinds of ways Yes, definitely. I, I agree completely. And I think that it's it's amazing how you have the connection between both the music and the art forms um, and how, how they are um, working together for you, I would say, very much so even in in, um, in the work that you presented to us and, and through our own platform. Everything is 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 loud in color, and it's. I would say, as a drummer, there is no silence there. <laughs> and yes. Was there? Is yes. uh, did you pursue music as a career? Have you pursued music as a as a professional, or is it something that you're interested just no, as I've on done, the side? I mean, I've had a number of different careers, and at one point, I was a professional drummer. I, I never managed to fully pay my bills off of music alone. I never fully paid my bills off of art alone either so i don't see that as a mark of, of shame or anything but I, I played in a number of different bands um i've been told that my artwork is a form of capturing music um in two dimensions and now in mm -hmm. two and three dimensions because of exactly that combination of textures and patterns and the use of color in ways that kind of capture certain kind of musical movements and moments and mm -hmm. i'm okay with that i think I, I, in the same way that I'm in, always interested in, in breaking down divisions between two and 3D, I'm also interested in breaking down divisions between like the visual and the oral, because certainly mm. when I listen to music, I see things in my head and I know I paint to all different kinds of oral things around me. So why wouldn't that end up channeled in different kinds of ways? 
And I'm Absolutely. I'm very much about like not accepting inherited divisions, right? Here's how it is. Why? Well, just just because how it's been. I'm not. Yes. So I've done. And in shifting online in the last couple of years, it's actually made it easier to do that because several of the ex exhibitions I've done have combined musical scores that I have written with the artwork that I have created to try to create more of a sort of surround experience. Mm -hmm. And that really is what I'm working towards in my current work is ways of substantiating these ideas and not just substantiating them as like single pieces, but more as mm -hmm. really true experiences for people to to. I hate to keep using the word experience, but to like to live inside of it in some kind of a way. Absolutely, no, amazing, and I, I I'm very much um, an advocate of how those of how the arts come together um, and how they create a fuller experience, as you quite rightly say. And we that's what we that's what our job is to do is to create an experience for people, um, whether it's whether that's for you yourself or for for a viewer. Um, we, we that that's what we do. We create an experience, and there's long live the continuation of the experience because without it, we we are very dull people. Yeah. So I just a kind of there's something that kind of crossed over my mind there. I was just kind of trying to think: was there a a point where you created a piece of art or a piece of music when you just realized, ah, oh, this is this is good. This is something now. I feel that has hit a point. This is this is this is the beginning of something for me. I feel like I'm in the right place. That's interesting. You know, I was thinking about that, and I think I've always been of two minds about that. I when I make whether I, it's the it, the enjoyment of playing music is often playing with other musicians, whether there's an audience or not. There's when the audience is there, it adds to that synergy. But mm -hmm. the basic interest for me is never really playing by myself, but in playing with others because of the kind of in the moment synergistic, the energy you can feel each other sort of intermelding in a way, similar to like psychedelic drugs. It's a, a very interesting, it's like creative flows merge together in a way and it creates mm -hmm. something that is greater than what is there individually. And so I think I'm what I'm always interested in is finding moments of that kind of intermixing, of that, that sense of um, more than what is there, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I'm making, contrarily, it's almost always just for me. Like, I, that's why I'm, I, I can, if I could give away my work, I would, because it's not about, I'm interested in people's reactions. I love to see, I love to hang out in the back of a gallery. No one knows I'm there and just hear what people say about the work and the conversations that they have. I love to know what it spurs in other people. Mm. And I think that's because it's almost like once I've made it, it's it was the creative flow moment of making it that I'm actually most interested in. And once it gets made, I can move on to the next one, no problem. Like I know yeah. some people that could spend six months or a year on one piece. I could never do that. I Even yeah. if I would take six months to do a piece, there would be a hundred other pieces I would have worked on intermittently. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that yeah, yeah. one piece. That I, I, for me, it's, I, I always... I want to keep that movement going. And mm -hmm. so it's like, oh, a piece is done, on to the next. Another one, on to the next. And so my iterative process helps with that because it kind of depends on finishing one to to have that spur the idea for the next one, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. 100%, so yeah. When I'm creating, when I'm creating, what I'm interested really is it's 
It's like, I don't need therapy, right? It's like, mm. I, don't, I don't have to go and talk to anybody else. It's like what you said, you can come back to the artwork later. And if you've done enough of it, there are patterns that emerge from it. And you're able to step back and say, oh, that's what I've been wrestling with here. Or that's what I've been thinking through. Or that's something that it's been in my work for many years that I finally noticed is there's a pattern there of some kind. Yes. And I mm. think that that's because if you truly are tapping into that universal sense of creative flow, it's part of me as much as it is anybody else, right? So it allows mm. for a connectivity, but yes. it also allows for a certain kind of individuality mm. at the same time. You've gone back on what you've said already at the very beginning of this conversation where you started off as a six-year-old creating in these mazes and creating things together with individuals and you're still speaking about the collaborative process and how you're working together with others regardless of whether it's you in your studio at home and bringing that work to a grouping of people to engage with it or whether it's you and your band and it seems like that is a massive through line to your practice. I talk about my work there's this concept that comes from Hegel of Aufhebung, the negation of the negation and it's like all this fancy highfalutin speak, but what it kind of boils down to is it's not one or the other, it's both, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, I need long stretches of isolation to do the work. It's very difficult to do really good creative work in the way I'm talking about tapping that kind of creative flow if there's mm -hmm. a lot of other humans around me. Other people can do it just fine. I need isolation to make it go. And I can mm. sometimes create that by like putting music on with earbuds. And if I'm in a studio with other people and I'm focused, I can make that work for me. I turn it into work. I go to work. I do it. I do mm. it better if I'm just by myself and isolated, right? But because so much of what I'm usually interested in is precisely then how the wider world around me is reacting to that work, I need mm. to have that interaction on some level. Yeah. And so it's not one or the other. It's both. And it's kind of the managing the logistics of that, of when to spend time alone versus when to bring in that outside perspective. And mm -hmm. from that, I think, you know, I did graphic design for many years in the wine business. And it's the same kind of thing. Like there, there's always a client, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. always, the, it's not just a product you're trying to make, but someone actually has to sign off and approve it. So it's never just you in isolation. You always no. have to kind of go back, back and forth. And there's always yeah. iteration. It could be 200 designs before the damn yeah. thing gets done. And that's just part of the process. And if you're not yes. okay with that, you're not going to be very effective working with other people, right? So exactly. it's just like, yeah. on the one hand, total ego, your ego is totally involved, but it's a total involvement of egolessness, right? Mm. It's not really about me so much as channeling something on behalf of others. And that's really, like I say, when, when my art started to, when I could approach my art, as this external thing where I no longer felt connected to it as the maker and mm. it was just living on its own in the world. And I'm able to cognitively say, holy cow, I can remember making that. And yet my appreciation of it has nothing to do with that creation. That's mm. when I knew what I was making was really having an impact because it yeah. was impacting me. And I figured, well, geez, if I'm skeptical and I'm a, like uh, a cynical bastard and i'm like moved by something it's going to have an impact on other people too yeah. i don't know what that impact's going to be and i always say that like my work sometimes like creates very strong negative as opposed to positive i'm cool with that anything other than apathy i'm happy with i just don't want to feel like i'm wallpaper 
nothing wrong yeah. with being wallpaper if you make wallpaper, but I don't want what I make to feel like something that people just walk past and that yeah. doesn't make them have a reaction in some way. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's what we all try to achieve is to, to have that little bit of engagement with somebody else so that we can share an idea or a, or a thought about something that we believe in or something that we want to share. Um, it's, it's before we kind of, cause I'm unconscious that we don't want to, we want to kind of keep moving because we've lots to talk about. And I, well, there's another thing that I wanted to kind of figure out is how has your work changed from you in your teens, twenties to where you are now? How has that changed? How's it evolved? When I, um, so when I was in college, um, at one point, I was assembling a portfolio to go to art school. I ended up going to grad school in a different direction. That portfolio was almost all illustration, um, optical art, very much psychedelic, things I would describe as kind of techno-organic, very much free-flowing curves and lines, things that were designed to be what we would call trippy. This is the 90s, right? right? So it was like, the idea was to, to be trippy. To, to be things that people would want to get high on and then look at, essentially, right? Um, and that, I would say what I what happened was I then moved into doing graphic design. And so illustration is part of that in the background, but the commercial side of that means there's more a kind of a, a, a finished professional gloss that you're trying to create. It's even if there's illustration, the goal there is that there's product packaging that has a finished yeah. kind of fit it yeah but i was working with a lot of metallic markers because we use a lot of foil on wine labels in all different kinds of ways the use of the metallics sells the product right it makes it seem higher quality higher class think about your typical sparkling wine enclosure and how much gold and gold leaf and it's just the whole there is to like sell glitz mm -hmm. and so i'm doing designs on paper using these markers and once I was out of wine and was moving back into sort of fine art again, I had these markers. And so the first maybe 7,500 pieces I did now, uh, almost close to a decade ago, are, um, are done on canvas using metallic markers. Hmm. When I wanted to then and those could take those could take a month to do one piece. It was a very hmm. slow process because with the markers, you have to keep the the live edge wet so that the entire block will all have it going in one direction like mm. one of those pillows where you can play it in both directions you want it all to be smooth in one direction so it's mm. a very laborious very tedious process it's the kind of thing that people who have learned calligraphy i think will understand it, like something that looks beautiful one piece can take hours and hours of very tedious kinds of drawing and sketching out mm -hmm. so when i i wanted to speed that up Right. Like I wanted to make more work faster is what it comes down to. So I went looking for metallic paints. And in order to create that same finished effect with metallic paints, you really can't use brushes. You have to use palette knives. So I started moving into using palette knives and metallic paints. And from there, what I wanted was I was working with optical art and using various instruments to texturize to create these more kind of effects. It makes stuff pop out. Mm -hmm. I moved from texturizing into fluorescence, like the piece behind me is actually a piece that under UV light flashes out completely differently. It just pops. It's that idea of one and the other and both at the same time. 
Mm -hmm. So what my process has gradually changed and morphed into is instead of playing with people's eyes in terms of illustration and then playing with people's eyes in terms of sort of texture and geometric shape, now I'm trying to play with people's eyes in breaking down two and three D distinctions altogether. Rather than a mm. piece that appears to move out into space, my work is now actually moving out into space and occupying three dimensions. And so mm -hmm. I think of it as applying a kind of painterly eye. There's a thing about the way in which painters think about composition, the use of color, the use of layout, how we want the eye to move around the piece. I think of that as part of the sculptural way I'm working with color in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so what that has really meant is how do I create a layering effect physically that the yes. eye would normally perceive in two, right? It's like making 2D, 3D. Now I'm making two and 3D almost into a kind of 4D amalgam of the two in ways that are, um, sometimes the 3D appears to be flattened down to two. So it's like, am I looking at something that's sculptural or am I looking at something at a painting? And then if you change the, the direction, the angle at which you're approaching it, you realize, oh no, this is actually a 3D physical object. And so it's playing optically, not because the optics are changing, but because the position of the audience in relationship to the piece. And so mm -hmm. where that then took me ultimately is, how do I get you to play with this stuff? How do I get you to pick it up and physicalize it? And so mm -hmm. I was trying to do that, um, making 2D pieces physically come out from the wall. So I would I did like a long piece and then put a plinth underneath it to make it physically separate out to try to encourage people to touch it. And some people were willing to do that. Some people were not. Like, okay, how do I get it so that you would want to pick it up? Well, if I can miniaturize it, make it smaller, make it things that you want to reach towards and touch, it will encourage you to really want to kind of interact with the artwork. What I really have found is there's this great hesitancy. People have really been acculturated, not just to see that yes. art is this like high thing that they should be looking up to. Tell me how I should interpret this, but also that it's something that's so special that my, my very touching of it will somehow taint it forevermore. Yeah. And I, I, I can always make more of it. It's art. I can mm. give you more. It's not a problem. Yeah. And so it's, it just goes back to this idea of like breaking down boundaries. I think the thing that is the throughput for me <clears throat> as someone who was looking in from outside, all I ever wanted was access. All I wanted mm -hmm. was to have the same opportunity as anybody else apparently had, mm. right? And so I look at art as creating that opportunity for others. And I mm. know that it has spurred other people because I know people have said, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, I want to go make that myself now. I want to, right? So for me, it's as much about what art produces in others as yes. like what the artwork itself is. And that's uh, 30 years as a teacher, maybe. I don't, I, I, there's all kinds of psychological kind of like, tracing that I could possibly do but I'm always as interested in what other people will do with the work as mm. what the work is in and of itself and you're giving people um, the permission to do that though you know and I suppose we are accustomed as you quite rightly say to not touch the artwork we go into a gallery now or a museum and we're told not to touch we're not to go beyond the line that's placed on the floor we are to kind of keep our distance and enjoy it from afar um, and I suppose bringing in the the 
the access that you speak of, I suppose, is bringing it into a more performative space, um, engaging the audience with it. Or would you agree with that? You know, it's a funny thing. So what I'm working towards, I'm, I'm doing an MFA currently, and um, my thesis is ultimately going to be some version of public art and sort of defending what public art can be, right? And I think oftentimes public art ends up being these large monumental things that get treated as a spectacle that people mm. are willing to touch long enough to kind of take a picture with. I think of like the bean or the Robert Indiana love and like, they want to take a picture of it. They'll touch it long enough to like, it, Oh, okay. I've seen it. I've done it. And then they move on to the next thing. My mm. version of public art is something that more pulls you in and you want to stick around and play with. And so that's why a lot of the work I've been sort of playing around with no pun intended has been ways of modulizing art, of using hot glues to cast or to drip shapes, and then using magnets embedded in them to allow the mm. positions to be repositioned so that it encourages people to stay with it, right? To sort of stay in the moment with the artwork rather than just mm. one and done. And yes. I really feel like that, that that's a different version of what public art means. Rather mm. than art that is available to the public, it's more art that is with the public in the sense of in trying to create opportunities for people to 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 see themselves with the art as opposed mm -hmm. to like reinforcing some kind of separation or boundary between themselves and the mm -hmm. art. And art no. art as spectacle in a weird kind of way does that because they don't see the art. No. It's it, it, like if you go to a um I, I spent a lot of time in MoMA in New York this past summer, hours and hours. And what I the pattern I saw was so many people not really there for the art themselves. The art, the pieces were there to be a backdrop. Like they would literally mm. where the art was behind them, they would never actually look at it. It was simply there. So when they were taking the selfie, there was the thing behind them they were taking the selfie with. But as soon as yep. they took the picture, they went away and never actually looked in person, in real time, appreciating the artwork itself. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's like a yeah. weird kind of thing. But mm. then, okay, so that's because they're in a gallery. Okay. But I was in New York, which has lots of public art. Out in public, they were doing the same thing. It, it was like the art was there, but not. Like it was a spectrum. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's drawing you in. But as soon as you're there in its presence, it literally kind of disappears out of the picture as something you care about or aware of. That's mm. not art for me. That's that is that idea of wallpaper, right? Like if there's it's no the wall, but there might as yeah. well be because you're just you're just yeah. walking past it. It's not. I, I it might as well be blank. It might as well not even be there in the first place because the intention behind it. Is that not taking some level? That's probably questioning a whole other topic, though. I would say, Josh, insofar as people's engagement with other things other than themselves, <laughs> and and the, the selfie generations, I suppose, and like I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But I, I I completely understand where you're coming from. You, I've been through a few different galleries across Europe this summer, and it's the same thing you're seeing is people just taking photographs with the artwork as the backdrop and not actually enjoying or engaging or or processing the work that's actually there. You're almost going through the space and just enjoying the architectural elements of the site and the paintings are part of that architecture rather than 
you engaging with the point that an artist is trying to make which I suppose is I don't know how whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not I don't know well it certainly lets me understand something like why Richard Serra would say you know screw it I'm just going to make this so big that you just can't ignore it and I'm going to make it and design it in such a way that you have to touch it that it gets in your way as you're trying to move around it right like you can sense a kind of frustration and and Mm -hmm. the source of it then because we're trying to connect and the audience that we're hoping to connect with isn't like paying attention at all. That's a very frustrating. If the goal there is not just to make for yourself, but I guess from my perspective, what that means is that as artists, we have to listen. If we're not paying attention that the context around us is shifting and we're hoping Mm -hmm. to make connections. If we don't pay attention, we become history. That's not living art anymore. Right. Like we've literally become the thing that we're trying not to be. So, again, to me, it's like rather than bemoaning it, rather than taking on that, like Clement Greenberg, I know better and the master should listen to me. I would rather try to make something that encourages the thing I'm looking to have happen rather than just bemoan the state of the world. Like that's not effective use of art or creativity. It's a problem. Solve it. Art is yeah. problem solving. Solve it. Find a way. And I just take yeah. that on as a challenge then rather than something that should be seen as a negative. It, mm-hmm. it is negative, but I'm not going to let that stop me. If I let what was negative stop me, we wouldn't be having this conversation because 90% of what I'd done in my life, I wouldn't have done. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. 100%. And I think this is a conversation that I feel we should actually talk about in the future. And we're going to put a pin on that before we open up another can of worms, Josh. <laughs> So let's get back a little bit to you, um, Josh, before I talk about your work right now and what you're doing and what you're making at the moment, because we've made reference to quite a few pieces already with regards, without even um, annotating what they are. Um, and I'd like to go back to that in a second. But just let's build the picture of your studio space for our listeners. What is it that you're doing? Where are you sitting? And how do you how do you get into the frame of mind or into the point where you say, I'm going to go in here now and start making a piece or I'm going to just throw some some something onto a piece of canvas or what what is your process? So when I made the decision, when I made the decision to come back to fine art, what I did was essentially orient everything else around me in my space around art. I don't have a lot of room to work in. I work in a very small space. It's a corner of a bedroom. Fortunately, the ceiling is rather high. It goes up 15 feet. So I can work vertically. I can take a big canvas and turn it sideways and get to work on a four or six foot long canvas. But I can't like horizontally, it won't work the same direction. It's literally only about four feet wide. So the space, again, it goes back to this idea of like problem solving. The space is small, but it doesn't restrict me from producing a lot of work. In a typical mm-hmm. year, I do three to 400 pieces out of that space. And some of them are very large and some of them are obviously much smaller, but I haven't mm-hmm. let that restrict me at all. What I have found is um, when I've had the opportunity to have a studio off site, that actually has been an interruption in my process because it has meant having to go to the studio and doing the work, right? It's like, now I have to, now I must create. I have gone to the studio. I'm going to create from this time to this time. And that's just not how it works. So instead, I have a bunch of different jobs that allow me to work remotely. I finish up a project. I got an extra 10 minutes. The work is literally in front of me. I'll add to whatever the current work is. And so it's more that I find time in the cracks of the day so that Mm -hmm. in each day, I can be very busy. I have 
I'm back to having 18 hour days again. Back when I used to work four jobs, I was running wineries, I was teaching, had clients. It was a very chaotic time at one point where I was literally working 100 hour weeks easily every week for month after month after month. And I find myself almost back to that level of busyness again because of this MFA. But if, if 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there, six times in a day, that's 90 minutes of creating. And that mm. adds up across seven days a week, across yeah. four weeks in a month, right? Like I just, mm. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not slagging anybody who like has their own process and some people need time to develop and everybody does it their own way, right? For mm. me, what I found is, I try to make as few excuses and just make as much work as I possibly can. And that doesn't mean that every piece of work is a 10, right? What it means is I make more 10s than I would have otherwise. What it yeah. means is just because of sheer numbers, there's, mm -hmm. a, and because I work iteratively and because if something's working, I can make more of it, right? And my work then branches and comes back. I have different series of works and things will be worked on for a while. I'll work on a different series. And then a, a third series brings both of those things together. It's that, again, that idea that I'm always kind of combining different mm -hmm. strands come back together. So for me, my day might be 10 minutes of working on something. Then I got to go grade papers. I got to leave and go teach a class, come back and work on a different project for a different job, add 15 minutes of, of work to a different piece, right? But that adds up. And so mm. what I find is it's more if I have a deliberative process that says every day I will create, whether that's at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, every day for me, I will mm. enter that flow state. And because that flow state is timeless, even 10 seconds of it can be the same as 10 hours, right? Yep. All it means mm -hmm. is that the amount of product that comes from that state may be different, but being in that state is just so important to me. And so uh -huh. it was like coming back to fine art was a way of allowing myself to fully be who I wanted to be. And I'm not in that kind of like self-actualizing kind of way, but literally mm. in the way I need to breathe, I need to create. I need to have that sense of adding instead of taking. And yeah. that's really how I look at it. I I'm serious when I say that if I could give away all of my work, I would. I look at mm. art as a gift. Gifts are mm -hmm. priceless. You don't, it's not a commodity. Yes, we make commodities into gifts, but the, go the goal there is really to give something to somebody else, right? And mm -hmm. so if I can, if I can benefit from doing that and also make somebody else feel good too, why mm -hmm. wouldn't I? Yeah. I just find that that process allows me to feel best about myself. Mm -hmm. I think that's an incredible attitude to have. And I, I think a lot of people who get bogged down in the creative process where they, where they feel like they're stuck or where they can't move forward, sometimes they're just overthinking it. Um, and it's just, I, I think your approach is really, really accessible. It's something that people should maybe consider a bit more. And I, I feel that like if you were to do um, a, a set two hours, I'm going to do two hours of work every day and I'm going to sit down, I'm going to look at a canvas and I'm going to do something with it or a piece of clay or whatever. And then you find yourself not making anything, whereas you've done 10 minutes and you've actually produced something in 10 minutes. You've gone away for six hours. And actually in the time between that point and the next point that you create, whether you're consciously thinking about it or not, that is still churning in your head. 
there's just something moving. You're bringing in life experience, you're bringing in other influences that is going to be added as another layer to the next thing that you create. I think that's incredibly powerful. I think it's really something that um, a lot of people should engage with and in, in the creative process. But really, when it comes down to it, you are very much innately a, a, a wonderful creator, Josh. And I think it's something that um, uh, comes really across in your in your work as well and in the, the visual elements of it and how vivid it is and in how, how uh, as I said earlier, loud and colourful and, and engaging it is. Um, so I think what we should do now is just make reference to a couple of those pieces. Um, you've sent me a couple of new pieces that we're going to share with our, um, our wonderful followers uh, through our collective channels and we're going to put them up onto the collective website and through our social channels soon. Um, but if you'd like to maybe speak about a couple of them um that would be that'd be great maybe one of your 3d pieces that 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 you're working on at the moment as well as a, a 2d three-dimensional piece <laughs> so that we, we can give everyone a flavor sure so i would say um a couple of the pieces i sent are, are what i call more um, i'm working all with hot glues hot glues and or acrylics as well but it's mm. it's mostly been hot glues recently because of this idea of creating painterly 3d works and the reason i say that is the hot glues are kind of like encaustics they're kind of like resins and they're kind of like acrylics but they're not really like either any of those things so they allow for certain kinds of manipulations but they also like they they how do i put it they are mutable in a way that resin is not and they are more mm -hmm. solid in a way that wax is not and so yeah. It allows for you can drip it or you can cast it. The dripping way creates things that are more 2D in effect. And so I included one in the new work. It's called Love's Lessons Lost, where it's literally been dripped onto the canvas and these different pools. And that allows you to build up off of it, almost like mountains, right? Like building up layers sedimentarily. Mm -hmm. But it is primarily a 2D broaching into 3d space and mm -hmm. i think the eye sees it and appreciates it more as a 2d with sculptural elements to it it looks mm -hmm. more like a painting the inclusion of the other like objects that you may have but with those those glue pieces or the or the melting elements that you have in there that are obviously connected by those materials what is there any significance to those such well, as like the I key think, or the. So the the overall piece, right? I was thinking about sort of um, honestly, I was getting ready for Valentine's Day sales. If I'm if I'm not, I'm gonna be truly honest here, right? Like one of the, the high points of the year when people buy art is in preparation for Valentine's Day. So I'm thinking about things that are kind of you know Valentine's Day oriented love, but I'm also thinking about how love is you know. It's a slippery thing. It's one of those things where you attain it, but keeping it around is difficult. It has to be maintained. And so the way in which the drips, it stays warm for a while, right? And so the glues take on a mind of their own. You can't fully control them, which is one of the things I really like about that. All mm. my work is always playing with this tension between order and chaos, which bordering on sort of almost a kind of schizophrenic overload over sensorium synesthesia and, and that's on purpose i'm trying to get the brain to almost like over max itself to the point where it's seeing things differently 
And so the fact that I can't control exactly what the glues are doing either, some of the pieces that are there are cast and added to it. But the minute the hot glue of fresh glue touches the cold glue, it reactivates the glue. And so mm. what had been solid becomes mutable in a, again in a way that I can't control. So it's it, it's a it's like this kind of freeing up of allowing the medium itself to take on some of the onus of the creation, which I think is kind of neat. It's working with the medium as opposed to fighting it and trying yeah. to make it do something it doesn't want to do. And then I it was this was part of a, a project I was working on using some kind of a found object. And I, I had this key like, OK, that works because of the whole idea of like lo unlocking love, unlocking the heart, um, locking your heart towards people that someone's heart melts away. Right. That when someone falls out of love with you, it can feel like they're literally melting out of your life. And so I think like the medium really does allow itself for a certain kind of expressionism. In the in that mm. painterly sense of expressionism, when we when we say expressionism, what we mean by that is ways of conveying emotion yeah. using the medium as that that method of conveyance. That's definitely that is definitely clear in that image, and as you describe it, I'm look I'm looking at the image here, um, and it's just it, it is it does emulate those feelings and those expressions. I think it's, it's, you've nailed it, and then you've kind of moved to a little bit more of a I don't know I I could say maybe a darker side potentially um maybe it's not um but in your mind is it are you you know what i'm referring to yeah you know I, it's funny Every, part of the reason i work with skulls so much i've worked with skulls now for many many years back when i was doing that original portfolio for art school the reason i was using so much illustration i was actually getting ready to apprentice with a tattooist and so like when you're doing tattoo work skulls are everywhere Right. And I've, I've always loved skulls. I, they've never been anything that brings on um, negative feelings. I don't see them in any kind of a negative way. I'm always impressed at how the skull functions, the way in which the jaw mechanism works. It's just a really a really powerful reminder that like nature creates really cool things. And the fact that it's inside of us, I just I understand that so many people are turned off by it. And, and there's always such strong reactions. I, I, it goes back to that idea of like, I know people will react strongly when they see skulls. It's not so much my interest in the skull is that I know if I put them up there, people will automatically like, whoa, yeah. what is that? It, like it always causes a double take in different kinds of ways. And I, I'm just, I'm interested in that, right? It reveals things about people in ways. And it, it, it kind of goes back to, I would trace some of my lineage to surrealism and Dada and not in the way of figurative surrealism, but in the way of playing with people's heads and making them yeah. do double takes and trying to get them to like come to terms with different sort of things that they're not always comfortable coming to terms with. And so the use of skulls, the use of the UV light, because a lot of this stuff, what I found is that the glues are also reactive to UV light in the same way that fluorescent paints are. And I really like that because then it's not just natural light or fluorescent light, but both of them can be used in combination together in different kinds of ways. And it brings out different things, right? It's like mm. a morning light versus an afternoon light versus an evening light as a painter. You know mm. you're going to get different shadows. You know you're going to see the world differently and be able to capture it differently as a result. And I True. think it works the same kind of way with this merging of 2D and 3D. And then add in something as totemically powerful, right? As symbolically intrusive on people's psyche 
bodies as a skull or multiple skulls. And yes. that's when people really start to get freaked out, right? Like a pile of skulls really makes people think like, what is that? What's happened here? What's going on? And I always turn it around. You tell me, what do you see? Why is that what is causing your eyes to like twitch? Why is your brain chubbering? I I want to know, right? I find well, that you, really you, interesting. You've made me not question now why. So I think we'll leave it back <laughs> to the audience to actually answer that question. But I, I think they're intriguing. And I, I totally see what you mean in that you put a skull on the piece and you're like what why is why is this person here why is this individual here is it about mortality is it about oh is it about what no it's probably not about any of it which is great um and you kind of you think okay he's just very gothic and he likes to kind of go down the dark the dark side of things and it's just so contrasting to your other works which is just it's just great i love that i think it's i love that for me, the funny thing is, the more I refuse to really reveal why I work with skulls so much, right? Some people, they get really angry. Like, you must tell me. They want to insist on this kind of authorial intention in ways that, like, for other abstract work, they don't. And it's, I think it's because it gets closer and closer to kind of like the uncanny valley and this, the line between figuration and representation and abstract. And there mm -hmm. is a meeting point there, right? Yeah. These are cast skulls that uh, that I can't I can't reproduce. Like every one of them is unique. It's not I. Some of the people I work with have been telling me, "Oh, make your own, like scar scarve your own skull, and then do your own positive negative cast." And I can do that. That's not it's not like it's not in my skill set to do it. But working with the hot glues, as soon as you work with them, you realize, oh, there's no controllability here. It's it, it, the it's not like resin. You cannot yeah. make two and ever have them be the same at all. Yeah. And so I feel freed in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. But I think it's precisely because the skulls then, if you look at them, they're not – there's layers in each of the casts mm -hmm. because of the different colors, because of the different kinds of Definitely. glues. Yeah. And so – and the way in which the cast takes the glue, it's always partials. There's always air gaps. It's always a real kind of um, insoluble, intangible tangibility mm. that causes people to question, which to me, it gets back to this idea of I don't want wallpaper, right? I don't yeah. want you just walking past it. And so yeah. if I don't want that, well, then giving you something I know is going to make you do a double take, yeah. doing it in a way that makes you start to wonder if that is my goal. That's an ideal method of making that happen from my perspective. And it's it's it is exactly those reactions that I I just I giggle. Like, yeah. tell me why. Like, no, no, you tell me why. You tell me why you're interested. I think, Josh, that is a perfect point to uh to to conclude this conversation because it has it has put you in that in it, it is summarized your work completely in that you do not want your work to be wallpaper. And you want to make sure that you make a point and that somebody stops, looks and engages with your work and sometimes touches it and you're okay with that. So I, I think that's I think that's a really good point to take away from this. And I think uh, your work is really great. And I think we're delighted to have you on the collective and to have the the amazing different qualities that your work has and the, the, the very contrasting pieces that you have and that we are so excited to share with everybody with the new pieces that you've got here we really appreciate having you with the collective and we really cannot 
um, encourage people enough to check you out, check out your profile on The Collective and, and follow us so that you can see lots of new work um, from Josh coming up um, soon over the this his feature month, which is November, December of 2022. Um, so thank you, Josh. Thank you so much. And thank you. Uh, you're, you're more than welcome. And you can see all of Josh's work on our collective's website at www.newacollective.com. And you can see it across all our social channels. You'll check us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, The Lot, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it, we're on it. We've, we've bombarded the world with, with New Collective. So please help us spread the word by sharing it with your friends and family and everyone else. And, um, and if you have it in your, uh, do please support our artists by maybe purchasing a piece from them. And, um, uh, share the gift of art this Christmas <laughs> uh, that is coming around I'm going to nip this in the book before we know it but thank you very much for joining us Josh and um, everyone else stay creative, stay safe and we'll speak with you very soon thank you for listening